Well, if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to the, first, the book of First Peter, the New Testament letter of First Peter, and we'll be looking at the first two verses of chapter 1 today. We're beginning a new sermon series uh, in our morning worship services. For the next nine weeks, we'll be working our way through the letter of First Peter. And you may remember several months ago, I preached through chapter 1 of First Peter in the morning and evening services. Uh, we covered verses 3 through the end of the chapter, and I don't intend on revisiting those verses since we just did that a couple months ago. I may encourage you to find those sermons on Sermon Audio or on our website and listen to them at your convenience in order to complete the series, uh, but we'll only make mention of those verses as they're relevant to the rest of the book as we work through it. Next week, in other words, we're going to be jumping into chapter 2, verse 1. But this morning, I want to look at verses 1 and 2, which we didn't look at a few months ago when we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1 together. And there's a number of very important things that Peter says here in these first two verses that we'll draw our attention to this morning. So without further introduction, let me read verses 1 and 2. This is the word of the Lord. Please take heed how you hear it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, letter writing is a lost art, isn't it? I confess that each time I read a collection of letters, I commit to begin writing more letters to people. And unfortunately, these commitments end up lasting slightly less time than my commitment to stay away from sugary foods. They're very short-lived. But I do love reading thoughtful, encouraging, rich, warm letters, don't you? Has anybody read an anthology of letters before? I've been reading through John Newton's letters recently, which have been tremendously encouraging to me. There's also a book uh, edited by Michael Haken, I believe, called The Christian Lover, and it's a a collection of letters written between husbands and wives of yesteryear. So it's correspondences between some great Christian uh, thinkers of the past, John and Idolette Calvin, Martin and Katerina Luther, uh, Martin and Bethan Lloyd-Jones, and it's letters back and forth between them as one of them would be away traveling. They would write these wonderful letters to each other, far richer than anything I have ever written, to be sure. And letters are very personal, aren't they? They take time to write well. Texts take no time, and in fact, we've now reached the point in our technological advancement that you don't even need to type a text anymore. You can speak it, and it will type for you. That's how far removed we are from letter writing. Letters are personal because they convey more than other forms of communication. For example, when you receive a letter, perhaps you've received a letter written on a fancy stationery, and it says something either about the writer of the letter, maybe their office or their job or their personality, or it conveys the seriousness of the letter or the occasion of the letter. Then you have the handwriting that's a part of letter writing. Now, some of us look like a four-year-old is writing with the wrong hand while being shocked by electricity, 
And you've received letters like that before, I'm sure. I've written them. But if you want to take time, most of us have the capacity to write neatly, and the person that receives the letter knows that time was taken by the penmanship of the letter received. There's something personal about that. You also have to think more thoughtfully about what you say when you write a letter versus typing. I can fire off an email of 800 words in a couple of minutes and then go back through and reread it and edit some stuff out by deleting. You can't do that with a letter. You have to think through each sentence before you write it and then have your dictionary open in case you use a word that exceeds your spelling capabilities. You also have limited space in a letter, unless you want to send some thick book to somebody, you have to use an economy of words. And so letters are more thoughtfully written than other forms of communication. In other words, letters communicate more intentionally, more warmly, and more personably than do other forms of written communication. And the Bible is made up of countless letters, isn't it? There, Of course, there are some historical narratives, and there's poetry and so forth. But much of the New Testament is made up of letters written by one person to someone else or to other people to convey rich, warm, intentional thoughts about the gospel of Jesus Christ and life as a Christian in this fallen world. And I want us to consider today Peter's first letter. We're going to ask questions about who he was as an author. Why is a letter from Peter so significant? To whom was he writing? And why are they the recipients of this letter? And what is he trying to say to his original readers and to us? And our aim this morning in looking at these verses will be to answer the question, what is my relationship with this vain world in which I live? That's the question I want you to be asking yourself this morning. In other words, am I comfortable here on earth? Or does my heart long for a better country that is a heavenly one, as the author to Hebrews says? Let's take a look for a moment at the author of this letter, Peter, who introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, who was Peter? Peter is one of the most well-known apostles. Uh, We all know that there were 12, and most of us know Peter, James, John, Judas, and Matthew. There was an Andrew in there. We start to, the list gets Kind of, our voices kind of quiet down as we're asked to recite the other seven. Peter's one at the top. Nobody who's read their Bible more than a couple times forgets that Peter was an apostle. He's a well-known apostle, one of the most well-known. And we might say that he was part of the inner circle, wasn't he? We read across the gospel accounts about Peter, James, and John. Uh, they were invited into the room when Jesus raised the young girl from the dead. Uh, Peter, James, and John, they went up on the mountain with Jesus when his heavenly glory shone through his fleshly veil, and they got to hear the voice of God the Father declare his joy in the Son, and they got to witness him talking with Moses and Elijah. Peter was part of the inner circle. He saw things and experienced things and did things with Christ that some of the other apostles didn't even get to experience. And some of it was bad. You recall that Peter was right outside the trial of Jesus in the courtyard with John. And what did he do while he was there? He denied knowing Jesus at all. He had this very disquieting conversation with Christ just hours before that Satan wanted to sift him like wheat and that he would deny Jesus three times before the, before the crow, uh, uh, or excuse me, before the rooster crowed in the morning. And so Peter had all of these experiences with Christ, 
both his threefold denial and his threefold restoration in John chapter 21. You recall John 21, Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he's cooking some fish over a fire on the beach, and the disciples are out in the boats fishing, and they recognize that it's him. Peter leaps out of the boat into the water to swim in, while the rest of them sort of row their way back in. But Peter swims into shore, and when he's there, Jesus restores him with this threefold commission to go feed my sheep and tend my lambs and take care of my flock. Peter was well-known when he wrote this letter, and he's well-known now. Imagine getting a letter about what it's like to do your own Hollywood stunts from Tom Cruise. That would be a comparative letter to what the recipients of this letter here are receiving. Peter has experienced life with Christ. He knows about life with Christ. Uh, Maybe getting a letter from Peyton Manning about throwing a football. You'd feel like you were receiving a letter from a resident expert, wouldn't you? Maybe getting a letter from Jay Leno about what it means to collect classic cars. All that to say, when Peter's writing a letter about anything related to Jesus and his gospel, it's significant because he has first-person account insight into what it's like to be with Jesus Christ. He had spent all of his waking moments for over three years with Jesus. He left his father. He left everything he had to follow Jesus around the countryside. He walked with him and talked with him over years about all manner of things we may not even know about. You know, John in John chapter 20 tells us that Jesus did many things and said many things in the presence of the apostles. And if they were all written down, the whole world couldn't contain the books of information. Imagine the sort of stuff that Peter and Jesus must have spoken about in their daily life together. Perhaps some of what he's saying here in this greeting about the the work of redemption accomplished and applied by our triune Godhead. Perhaps he uh, he and Jesus talked about suffering. After Jesus' departure, Peter and the rest of the apostles, all except for John, would give their lives as martyrs. Perhaps they spoke about those things. Maybe they spoke about the world to come about what it'll be like in heaven, some things we just don't know. But we do know that Peter was not writing as a casual observer, but as a friend and follower, in fact, an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle, you know, is a sent one. That's just what the word means. It means that one who has been sent, that implies a couple things, doesn't it? To be sent implies having a sender. It implies that someone sent him out. It also implies a mission. It means that he's been given something to do. He's not just sent out nebulously into the world. Rather, he's been commissioned and sent for a purpose. And he's going to talk about all of these things here just in this opening greeting of his letter. Who sent him and what was he sent to do? Well, Peter was sent by Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. Peter, an apostle, a sent one, of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who sent him. And this is important to us as it was important to the original recipients of this letter. It means that Peter, whatever he says as an apostle, is not based on his own authority, but on the authority of the one who sent him. When Peter speaks as an apostle, he speaks as one who has been given authority, commissioned by the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he has delegated his mission and his authority to his apostles and to his church. Think about John again in chapter 20. And we looked at this in chapter 17 where this language is repeated. 
But in John 20 and in John 17, Jesus says to the disciples, as the Father sent me, in the same way that I'm an apostle from the Father, so I send you. And so we know that Peter's apostleship receives its authority from the one who sent him. And it receives its mission in likeness of the one who sent him. The same way the Father sent Jesus with a mission of reconciliation and peace, so too have his apostles been sent with a mission of preaching peace to those who are near and to those who are far off. So Peter is an apostle of Jesus. That adds weightiness to this letter, doesn't it? Or at least it should. It means that the words Peter is writing here, everything we're going to cover over the next nine weeks in this little letter, are full of the authority of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a question. If that's true, which we believe that it is, how are you going to respond when we get to chapter 2 and Peter tells us to submit to all governing authorities? How will you respond to that? Is your gut instinct going to be to try to excuse that away? That can't mean what it actually says it means. It must mean something different that accords with my perspective on the government. What, what are you going to do when we get to chapter 3 when he tells wives of unbelieving husbands to live with them quietly and to not let your adorning be about external beauty? Will you balk at that? That Peter has something to say about how you present yourself and the way you communicate with your spouse, even if they're an unbeliever? When he tells elders to exercise oversight and humility, will we rather say that real leadership is about being boisterous and self-confident and forward? Will he, when he tells all of us throughout this letter to experience suffering for the sake of Christ, will we instead seek to avoid suffering at all costs? Remember, Peter's a sent one. And he speaks with the authority of the one who sent him. So how do we receive his words as Christians? How do we receive Peter's instruction? This, is, this book, 1 Peter, contains more imperatives per square inch, more commands per square inch than any other verse in the New Testament. Peter's constantly telling the Christians what to do. This is a book full of ethics of how to live in light of life in a fallen world as exiles, which we'll talk about here in a moment. What it means to suffer, to engage with the culture, to submit to the government, to live together in marriage, to experience trials and hardships, to serve as leaders in the church, to exercise the gifts that God has given you in humble service to one another. All of those things are Christ's words through Peter to us. So how will we respond? Brothers and sisters, let me warn you, there is something in this letter that is going to flick every single one of us in the nose. And do we take it as Peter? Do we take it as ancient? Uh, He was talking to another culture back then. I can't mean that now, obviously, because that doesn't fit with the way I want to live. Or do we receive it as the word of Christ that he gave to Peter to take to his people? Well, the second thing this text tells us is not only who wrote it, Peter, that apostle of Christ, full of his authority, but who he wrote to, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. There is more wrapped up in the second half of verse 1 than we could cover in a month of Sundays. The great Scottish preacher of the 17th century, Robert Trail, preached 11 sermons just on the opening of this letter. 
1 Peter, and he didn't come close to exhausting the information contained here. All that to say, if you decide to go home over the coming days and read and reread and reread verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter chapter 1, you will find more fodder for worship and food for spiritual growth than you could possibly imagine. Listen just for a second, and we'll come back to this. <clears throat> Peter's speaking to the elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of His blood. And we just don't have time to unpack all of that, but think about how much is contained in this short introduction. And Peter's writing to elect exiles. Well, who are they? The word elect, which many people outside of the Reformed world balk at, Uh, I remember a a gentleman who I respect dearly telling me one time, I believe, he said, that election means that we choose God and then he makes us his elect. And I said, that's delightful, except that's not what the word means. Uh, You just can't do that, can you? I believe that stop means roll through this red octagon sign And then when I get to another place that I don't feel like driving anymore, I stop there. I imagine that most police officers would have trouble with that interpretation of what it means to stop. And election in Scripture, the word elect used here is part of a group of words used in the Bible to describe those who have been chosen by God, those upon whom God has set his redeeming love and affection from all eternity past. Those who have received mercy and grace at the cross. Think of Jesus' words in John chapter 10. He says, I am the good shepherd, and I have sheep who are not of this fold, and I'm going to call them, and they're going to come to me. And by the way, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me calls them. In fact, he says, drags them to me. Peter's writing to those people, those who have been called by God, who have heard his voice and responded in faith. In other words, Paul is, or excuse me, Peter here is writing to Christians, isn't he? He's writing to those from around the world who have been a, a, a loved by God from eternity past and called to salvation. And that makes whatever he's going to say here inherently relevant to us as Christians. It means that we, elect exiles, are recipients of Peter's teaching in this book. Now, we're not the original recipients, are we? Peter wrote to real people in time and space in the middle, late part of the first century A.D., probably around uh, the late 50s or early 60s A.D. He's writing this letter. And there were real believers really living in all the different parts of Asia Minor at that time, Jewish and Gentile Christians, and he's writing to them. But remember what we said a couple of months ago when we looked at John 17. Jesus prayed not only for Peter, but also all those who would believe because of the word that they proclaimed, which is some of these folks, and it's certainly you and me. So we must pay close attention to this word specifically in 1 Peter. And in fact, we must pay close attention to the entire word of God. The Bible teaches us what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And that's you and I. I need to know this information. I need to know who God is, and you need to know who God is and how he wants you to live in this world as elect exiles. 
This begs the question, and I hope it's one you've considered before. I do sincerely hope that this isn't the first time that this question has crossed your mind, but let me ask it out loud. How should we listen to the Word of God when it's read and preached? Do you think about that often when you come to church on Sunday morning for worship or Sunday evening? How should I prepare myself to receive this information? Or has it become kind of old hat? Well, of course, I know we're going to get there. There'll be a call to worship. We'll sing. There'll be a prayer. We'll do the Lord's Prayer. We'll sing again. We'll go through some confessions of faith and some scripture reading. Can't wait till we're done, judges. And then we're just, <clears throat> and then there'll be a sermon. And of course, the, the, the pastor will have prepared a text and he'll preach it to us and there'll be some points of application and so forth. And so I'll be listening for points of application. And maybe some nuggets of information. Maybe you're, you're really uh, uh, academically minded and what you're hoping to hear is some historical anecdote or some bit of theological information that will strengthen your convictions in the Reformed faith, for example. And that's what you're listening for. But do you prepare yourself for this event, this unique event in our week where God speaks to us through his word. Let me tell you what our confession says in the shorter catechism. And children, I especially want you to be thinking about this. How do you prepare as a young person to come to church? Listen to what the shorter catechism asks in question 90. How is the word to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation? Answer, that the word may become effectual to salvation, we must uh, must attend to it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. And we must receive it with faith and love. And we must lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Well, that's a weighty answer, isn't it? That we're expected to come to worship each Lord's Day diligently. That means making effort to be here, to sit under the preaching and reading of the Word. It means that we do it with preparation. It means you don't wake up 30 minutes before church, brush your teeth, or if you don't have time, throw three sticks of gum in your mouth and fly across town to get here before the call to worship. It means that God has given you an entire Saturday evening each week. Do you know that every Lord's Day for all of history, there's been an evening beforehand that you can prepare to come to worship? God in His mercy has given us this time to prepare ourselves. Each week, this bulletin is published on our website on Friday that you can spend time thinking through the songs you'll sing to God, the prayers that will be prayed, the confession of faith that you'll speak with your lips, and the segment of Scripture, the portion of Scripture that we're going to hear preached. And we can prepare ourselves diligently to receive God's Word as it is the very Word of God. And with prayer, Lord, Open our eyes that we might behold the wonderful things contained in your word. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And all these biblical prayers that we can say to the Lord as we prepare for worship. Well, Peter's writing to us, he's writing to the elect, but he's writing to a group that he calls elect exiles. Now, what's an exile? Perhaps your Bible says stranger. The word here for exile or stranger suggests one who is a temporary resident, perhaps a traveler who's staying in a foreign place for a short period of time. And so you have this short time uh, idea in view here when he uses the word exile. But later on in chapter 2, turn with me to chapter 2, verse 11. 
excuse me, in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now, that word there for sojourner means someone who is a long-term resident in a foreign country. It might describe an immigrant from a distant place who's lived in a foreign land for several years, perhaps starting a career and finding and building a home. Both terms together signify that the person belongs somewhere else. The person belongs somewhere else. We have a portrait of someone who is from another place and is dwelling on foreign soil for some period of time. I think back to 2002 and 2003, I spent a year stationed in Japan. When I lived in Japan, I was in exile there. Uh, I was there for a short period of time, and I knew instinctively that this place is not my home. Now, there were aspects about it that I loved. Beautiful people, beautiful country, wonderful food. It was, a, it was a, an enjoyable experience, but it wasn't home. I imagine David feels no more at home than when the Welsh national football team is playing in the World Cup and winning. But from the day to day, you know in your bones that this isn't the food I grew up on. This isn't the accent that sounds normal in my ears. These aren't the people that have the same colloquialisms and customs that I had growing up. There's something different, and I know it in my bones. That's an exile. Now, my uncle, I have an uncle, my father's youngest brother, who's lived in Japan for 35 years, and he has his own business, and he has a home there, and he speaks the language, and he uh, uh, engages in commerce and entertainment, and he's part of the community there. He knows what it's like there, but he's still a foreigner. No matter how much he might feel somewhat at home there, he doesn't look like the people who are really at home there. And he knows that, and so do they. And there's something about being an exile or a sojourner that causes us to feel a camaraderie with people from our home, doesn't it? If you've traveled internationally before, you'll know what this experience is like. I, just recently, my wife and I celebrated our 15-year wedding anniversary by traveling overseas and taking a week to, uh, to rest. And when we were in the airport on the way home, uh, she looked across the seating area and saw a guy who was wearing a shirt with the outline of Montana and the word glacier in it. Now, Jen and I lived in Montana for almost eight years. That's not where we're from, but we lived there for a long time. And immediately we felt this kinship with this gentleman. And we started talking about Glacier National Park and Bozeman and Yellowstone National Park and all these things that we shared in common. On foreign soil, we had this moment of familiarity. And maybe you've experienced that before somewhere else. That's what corporate worship ought to feel like to us every week. We're strangers and exiles in this world. But when we come here together as God's people, people whose true home is somewhere else, we experience a kinship with one another and a reminder of the flavors and sights and smells of home. And it causes us to long to be there together, doesn't it? It reminds us that everything out there is foreign to us. The way that worldlings think, the way that they store up treasure, the way that they speak, the entertainment they enjoy, the relationships they engage in, they ought to be disquieting to us, 
not comfortable to us because it's foreign food. It's foreign soil. And our citizenship is somewhere else. And Peter writes to remind these Christians in the first century that life in this world should never feel quite like home. You're exiles here. This world should not feel like home to us. Our hearts ought to always have this sort of heavenly tug on them. Even as simple as driving to another state. Have you experienced this before? When you're driving away from home, the trip takes forever. But when you're driving home, it feels like it's all downhill, doesn't it? Like the roads are shorter. And the speed limit feels a little faster. And you get back a little quicker. Because you're ready to be there. You're ready to be in your own bed. You're ready to sit in that chair that you like sitting in. You're ready to walk in and and know where things are instinctively instead of walking around the Airbnb trying to find out which drawer has forks in it. You know what that experience is like. And that's what heaven should be like for us. Are you comfortable here, Christian? When you see the things that the world does and the things that they have, does it make you uncomfortable or does it make you jealous? Do you long for heaven or do you long for more of earth? Is your heart set upon earthly things, earthly treasures, that you might store them up here? If someone were to project your thoughts onto the wall, all of your greatest desires, would they see more money, more physical security, more possessions, a nicer car, a bigger house, more friends on social media, better clothes, more acclaim, Is that what they would see? Or would they see all that stuff pushed to the side, counted as rubbish in light of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ as your Savior? Would they see that you're storing up treasure in heaven, a spiritual account where you're evangelizing and seeing your children and your neighbors and friends come to faith in Christ? That your words and your actions and your thoughts are heavenly oriented, that that you take captive every thought to obey Christ? That you'd give up all of these things to be conformed to the image of the one who didn't even have a place to lie his head at night. Even foxes have dens and birds of the air have nests. And most of us spend a lot of time and effort trying to pad our nest and build up our den. When the Son of Man had none of those things. That doesn't mean having them is sinful, but if that's where your heart is, where moth can eat away and and rust can corrupt it, and thieves can break in and steal, then where's your real treasure? And where's your heart? Peter's writing to elect exiles. He wants us to know that our heavenly home is where our heart should be. As Christians, we should never feel truly comfortable in this world. We should long for that better place whose foundation and builder is God. Well, the last thing that I want us to think about briefly in this opening uh, greeting from Peter here is what he's writing about. Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's been sent under the authority and with the same mission as Jesus. He's been sent to a people who are elect by God from eternity past and exiles in this present world, those whose home is somewhere else. And he wants them to consider at the outset of this letter, which as we've already discussed is going to deal with suffering, life as exile, a call to holiness, 
broken relationships, submission to governing authority, exercising spiritual gifts, shepherding as leaders in the church, being humble, and experiencing trials of various kinds. At the outset of all of that, as an introduction to all of this information, which is so greatly relevant to each of us day by day, the most important thing in Peter's mind for us to consider is our Trinitarian salvation. That the entire Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have from eternity past been working to affect your redemption. Peter wants you to know that from before the world was created, that each person of the Godhead has been working to affect your salvation. Listen to what he says. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. From the planning of our salvation in the mind of God to its being worked out in space and time by the Son, to its being applied to the elect by the Spirit. It is a Trinitarian enterprise. Peter tells us that our salvation occurred according to the foreknowledge of God. That is to say that God the Father has eternally appointed us for salvation. And that's a great comfort to us. It should be a great comfort to us as Christians. It means that God's salvation of you is not based on something He saw that you would do. And it's certainly not founded upon something that you can undo because of your weakness and sin. Rather, your salvation is based upon God's intention to save you, His will to save you, His mercy in saving you. And we know that God's plans cannot be thwarted. No one can stop Him. No one can frustrate His will. No one can undo His design. This is a great comfort to us, not only for our own salvation, that my salvation has been secured from before the foundations of the world, but also our evangelistic efforts. Think about the fact that we've been called, sent out into the world as those given a message, as Paul calls it in Second Corinthians chapter 5, that message of reconciliation, to proclaim to others salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if that's true, and God has foreordained those who would be saved, then when we preach the gospel to people, we have confidence that those whom He has appointed unto salvation will receive it. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice, and they hear me when I call, and they will come to me. No one can snatch them out of my hand. So God the Father's eternal election of His people is a comfort to us personally as those in Christ, and it's an encouragement to us as those who do the work of evangelism in this world. We scatter the seed of the gospel as far as we can, and we trust that God will cause it to take growth in the hearts of His people. Peter also references here the Spirit's work in our salvation. He says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, there's two aspects to this word sanctification. We have the notion of the Spirit's work of conforming us to the image of the Son of God. That growth in holiness, right? We're, we're aware of this concept of progressive sanctification, where our lives steadily trend towards Christ-likeness as the Spirit causes us to love 
and to obey the precepts of God. We look more and more like Jesus Christ as we walk faithfully with Him. But there's also the idea in sanctification of being set apart for salvation. That word sanctified, to be made holy, means to take from the profane and to put it aside for a holy use unto the Lord. And that's what the Spirit does for us. He not only applies the work of redemption in our sanctifying growth in Christ, He also sets us apart to be redeemed by the work Christ accomplished on the cross. And so the Spirit is intimately involved in every aspect of our salvation from eternity past and in the moment of regeneration and throughout the duration of the Christian life. The Spirit is involved in your sanctification Lastly, he speaks of the work of Jesus whom we obey and by whom, he says, we are made clean by the sprinkling of his blood. Now, this would call to mind, I'm sure, to his Jewish readers, that old covenant ceremony in Exodus 24. You remember Moses comes down from the mountain and the people are gathered around and they say, we'll obey everything the Lord has said. There's that idea of obedience. And then he takes the blood of the bull and sprinkles it onto the altar, and then he sprinkles it onto all the people. Not because the blood of the bull made them clean, not because it actually sanctified them, but because it images what Christ's shed blood would do for us. And when Jesus died on the cross and his blood was shed and sprinkled onto the hearts of his people, we are washed clean from our sins and brought into covenant fellowship with God into relationship with God for all eternity. And this is the work that the God who made the universe by the word of his power and upholds it by that same word has purposed in his divine will to keep you in Christ forever and ever. That's who Peter's writing to, and that's what he's writing about. He wants us as Christians to know that every aspect of your salvation is the work of our triune Godhead from all eternity past. Isn't that incredible? God wasn't pacing around in heaven one day and looked down and saw miserable me and thought, all right, I'll take that one, and walked over here and saw miserable you over here and went, okay, let's save that one. Rather, God, before any of us were made, before the universe was created, before life existed outside of God himself, he said within the perfect fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity, we are going to save these specific people. And we're going to do it by working together to accomplish and apply their redemption. Have you ever thought about the fact that before Genesis 1-1, God had your name on his mind and in his heart. Before Genesis 1-1, before anything had ever happened aside from God's existence, he said, I love you and you're mine. That's who Peter's writing to, and that's what Peter's writing about. Well, let's close this up now by thinking ever so briefly about Peter's conclusion to his introduction. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What a good reminder. Peter is the apostle of foot and mouth disease, isn't he? 
constantly saying bold things and then finding out just how bad it tastes when he messes it up. If anyone among the apostles understood what it meant to need grace, it was Peter. If anyone among the apostles experienced what it meant to have restored peace with God, think again about John 21, it was Peter. And he wants you to know that that same grace that he experienced at his lowest moments and the same peace that was offered to him by Jesus Christ after his worst sins are available to you in Jesus Christ. And he wants them to be multiplied to you. And that's good news. That no matter how bad you've messed it up, no matter how much of a sinner you might be, no matter how many times you've denied Jesus or failed to obey him or failed to follow him or failed to worship him or failed to uphold him as holy in your heart, there's grace to be had. There's peace to be found because God loves you with an everlasting love. And that's good news. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good word from the Apostle Peter his introduction that reminds us of so many truths that are meant to sustain and uphold us in this earthly journey. We pray that you would help us by your Spirit to submit ourselves to your Word, the words spoken by your apostles according to your Son's intention, that no word was made up by any of them, but rather they were carried on by the Holy Spirit to write whatever you wanted them to. We ask that you would help us remember what it means to be exiles in this fallen world, that we would never be so comfortable here that our neighbors couldn't tell a difference between us and the neighbors on the other side of their house. And instead, Lord, we ask that you would remind us what great work you've done for us in redemption, accomplished and applied to us, and intended from eternity past. Help us live as those whose home is in another world, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.